Will you please turn with me to Amos chapter 9? Back there in the Minor Prophets. This passage is cited in by uh, James, the brother of Jesus, in today's uh, sermon text. So we're going to read the, a little bit of the context here in its original setting in the book of Amos to begin with. Beginning at verse 11 of Amos 9. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, please turn with me to Acts. Our reading will begin at chapter 14, verse 24. We'll read on into chapter 15. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you, do, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday I went to a presbytery meeting over in Carlisle. This is where the leaders from all of the OPC churches in central Pennsylvania uh, got together to talk about various things that impact um, all of our churches here in this region. Uh, Back in June, many of you remember, I went to an even bigger meeting of the whole denomination, what we call the General Assembly, where we discussed things impacting OPC churches around the country and even around uh, the world, our mission churches around the world. Now, we could ask the question, why do we do things like that? Is this just kind of a convenient way to manage the business of the church that people came up with and thought was a good idea? Why is it important for local churches like ours to send representatives to meetings of, of the broader body of Christ 
uh, to consider those kinds of questions that impact the broader church. So hold that thought on the one hand. Think about something else. Earlier uh, in the worship service, we confessed our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. Tonight, we're going to use the Nicene Creed, which is the longer one. Um, and some of you may know the history of where the Nicene Creed came from. Um, to make a very long story very short, uh, it came from two great councils of the church in the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. And once again, we could ask the question, what's the value of, of using that creed? Why do we look back to those two councils you know, millennium and a half ago, more, as, as still having value um, these many years later in 2022, very different culture and times and circumstances. Well, uh, for both of those questions, Presbyterian one and the Nicene Creed one, there are, there are many answers, many facets uh, to, to why we do these things. But there's one answer that they have in common, and that is found right here in Acts chapter 15. This first and foundational gathering of Christians from different places to address really the most important and foundational question that the the first generation of Christians had to face um, in this uh, first century context. As the gospel had begun to, to spread like wildfire among the Gentiles out far beyond the reaches of um, Jerusalem and Judea and even Samaria, moving now to the uttermost parts of the earth, as Jesus described in chapter 1. But now it's raising the question, how are people really saved? When things we could maybe take for granted when it was just the Jewish church, when it was mainly Jews in the church, we have to ask the question now, are, are people saved by trusting Christ and keeping the ceremonies of the law of Moses? Or are people saved by trusting in Christ? Period. Was the church going to move from this point into the future, all the way to today, proclaiming a gospel of Jesus and, or a gospel of Christ alone? So let's find out. You know the answer, but let's find out in real time here together as we consider first the law debated, verses uh, chapter 14, 24 through 15, 5. Second, the leaders deliberate, verses 6 to 21. And then the letter delivered, verses 22 to 35. So the law debated, the leaders deliberate, and the letter delivered. So we've now reached the end of what people like to call Paul's first missionary journey. So as Paul and Barnabas uh, traveled around in south-central Asia Minor, part of uh, the region that's known also as Galatia, kind of grouping all those cities together, is in the book of Galatians. Um, Paul and Barnabas faced, for one thing, a lot of opposition, right? And so last time in the city of Lystra, we saw that Paul was stoned and left for dead outside the city. So fierce was the opposition uh, that was stirred up against him. But that was not the only thing that Paul and Barnabas experienced. It wasn't all bad. 
as fierce as the opposition was, uh, on the other hand, there were a lot of people that listened to them. A lot of people who believed their message and turned to Christ. Um, And so there were churches, churches that were established in all these cities. And Paul and Barnabas went around appointing elders in them and organizing these these churches um, to be able to uh, be led and uh, fed in the future. Those new churches in these cities like Lystra and Iconium and Derby and so on, those churches were not made up of the most obvious people that you might have expected to be the first to join the Christian church. The obvious people would have been the Jewish people, the members of the synagogue, people who had been expecting a Messiah to come, and now, as he had come and had been testified to by the Lord by so many signs, this was clearly the Messiah. You'd expect the Jews to be the ones, those those synagogue uh, members, goers, to to be the ones to respond to that gospel message. Uh, In fact, though, many of them, very many of them did not respond to the message. Some did. But... um, it's clear that it was actually from those Jewish synagogue communities that the fiercest opposition to Paul and Barnabas actually came. The violent opposition was stirred up, uh, beginning, emanating from there. And on the other hand, where the gospel really took off, where it really found a hearing, was among the non-Jews in all of those places. Uh, and so as Paul and Barnabas wrap up their journey um, here at the end of chapter 14, they go back to Antioch. This is the Antioch back in Syria. It's confusing. Uh, but this is the one where they originally started out. It's their sending church, their home church, Syrian Antioch. Um, this is what's primarily on their minds as they give their missionary report. Here's what happened on this first missionary journey. The thing that they highlight is the conversion of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And when they arrived, verse 27, and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the big takeaway from this journey from their perspective. Now, in Jerusalem, remember, we, you, you had an almost completely Jewish background church. Then in Antioch, a little bit later, a church was planted that was in Syria, so outside of Israelite territory, that had this, um, it had kind of a Jewish-Christian core. Started, was kind of evangelized by people who were Jewish but who started reaching out to Gentiles, and the result of that outreach was that you ended up with a sort of mixed community in Antioch. But now there's this further step, an even different makeup of these new churches in Asia Minor. Now you have these churches that from the outset, from the outset are just full of Gentiles. They're characteristically, maybe even majority Gentile churches. Um, and so Paul and Barnabas are excited to get back and tell everyone about this door of faith that the Lord has open now, especially among Gentile, these new Gentile believers. Well, <clears throat> it turns out that what to Paul and Barnabas is a reason to celebrate, uh, for others is reason for some alarm bells start going off, some red flags get raised. You could kind of imagine uh, two newspapers covering this, um, but with very different headlines. Same, same facts, different headlines. So the Bar- Paul and Barnabas headline says, God opens door of faith among the Gentiles. But then you, you go over to the other newspaper, and it says, new converts ignore key rules, get special treatment. 
And uh, so it says, some men, chapter 15, verse 1, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These are teachers people often refer to as, as the Judaizers. Judaizers. And their teaching said, listen, we're, we're fine with Gentiles coming into the church, I guess. Maybe some of them reluctantly, but they're willing to accept that. They're thinking, okay, sure, it's great that the gospel is reaching new people. But these people have got to understand, of course, that if they want to be part of Christianity, that they're making the choice to be part of Judaism, too. These Gentiles are welcome in the church if they are willing, in a sense, to become Jews. By taking on that sign of Israelite identity from the Old Covenant. Now, Paul and Barnabas disagreed fiercely uh, with that idea. And why... Was that? For a full answer to um, why they disagreed, chapter 15 here doesn't completely spell out all the reasons that they opposed this idea, but the book of Galatians does, uh, among other places in Paul, but especially Galatians. The book of Galatians was written specifically to deal with this particular controversy, uh, since teachers like these fellows at Antioch um, had apparently reached those Galatian churches and begun to persuade a lot of people there. Um, those churches that Paul and Barnabas had just evangelized in the first missionary journey. So um, that's a place you can go to, to read Paul's long argument against the circumcision of Gentiles. But just to sum up, um, what was the main problem with, with teaching the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Well, as, as you can see in verse 5, it wasn't just about circumcision. It was about really all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, um, circumcision was the a kind of iconic, um, symbolic center of the debate because it was the practice that distinguished Israelites from outsiders, and it's also one that would have been particularly burdensome for these Gentile converts. Kind of a watershed, are you willing to do this or not? Would have been a big question for any Gentile convert who was being asked to do it. But, but the broader point um, was that these people wanted the Gentiles to, verse 5 says, keep the law of Moses to observe all of the uh, ceremonial regulations about cleanliness and what kinds of food you could eat and so on. Paul makes the point in his letter to the Galatians that the coming of Christ has fundamentally changed things in terms of how God's people are to view and, and relate to those ceremonial regulations. The coming of Christ, Paul argues, there is not merely an added layer on top of the law of Moses, like icing on the cake, but this same cake is still underneath. Um, the idea then would be, so we've got the same law, the same as we've always had it, but now we're going to add Jesus to it. We're going to keep everything else the same. It's kind of flipping around the way we would more, more typically think of it, as I was talking about earlier, a Jesus and gospel except in the mind of the Judaizers, so it was really, it was the law and Jesus, but the law stays the same. And Paul argues very effectively in Galatians, no, no, those regulations, you have to understand what their purpose was. Their purpose was to picture and to prepare for something that now has, has actually happened in the coming of Jesus. See, who Jesus is and what Jesus did 
particularly in his death and resurrection. That's the substance. That's the real thing that those Old Testament regulations were, were picturing and preparing for. And, and so he uses imagery in Galatians to basically say, to, keep, to go back and keep following all of those regulations after Christ has come would be like going back to childhood after you've become an adult. Or he goes so far as to say it would be like going back to slavery after you've, been, after you've received your freedom. Those laws were preparing you for Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, we don't need that preparatory scaffolding anymore. When you finish a building, you don't leave the scaffolding up because, oh, what wonderful, beautiful scaffolding. We can't do without the scaffolding. We've needed it this whole time during the construction. No, you, you tear the scaffolding down. It's taken away because the building is here now. Not everybody agreed with Paul about that. And the dis- disagreement was momentous enough that the church in Antioch thought, I guess we need to get the perspective of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders, to help us to know what to do, what to teach as we move into the future. See, aside from the, the question itself, which is very crucial, we'll talk about that some more, the way they went about coming to an answer on such an important question is part of what's really instructive about this chapter. I want to clarify at the outset, there is a sense where this meeting in Jerusalem, what's often called the Jerusalem Council, is absolutely unique and unrepeatable. It's not completely a paradigm for every church meeting since. For one thing, it involves the apostles. We don't have the apostles. It would be nice if we had apostles at our presbytery meetings and so on. We don't. Uh, although we do have the apostolic witness in the scriptures. Right? So there's an analogy. Um, anyway, this, this council has unique authority. It is, it is a special council. It's an unrepeatable kind of council. It's also dealing with a, a core gospel issue that gets nailed down here very clearly uh, for the rest of church history. Um, on the other hand, though, this meeting embodies an important principle, and, and, and it does function as a sort of paradigm, from another perspective, for the church always. In this sense, it shows us that Christ has not designed the church to function as a scattered loose coalition of basically independent congregations. He's designed the church to be one body and therefore to function in a way that is interdependent, that is connected, and that is truly accountable. Um, so, again, I'm not saying that this is like a, something, a, something you can carbon copy for the life of the church today. I'm not saying this is the first general assembly or this is the first ecumenical council. no. I am saying, though, that it lies at the foundation of our thinking about how the church should come together to answer questions that impact the whole church instead of just deciding all these questions independently as local congregations. And so when we, when we talk about what it means to be Presbyterian, uh, we often say that it means that we're connectional. We're intentionally connected with and accountable to other churches. Um, and this is a classic example of the apostolic church living out that principle of connection in this first generation. Uh, Every church council since is downstream from this one, uh, again, in principle. Okay, 
setting that um, kind of big picture issue to the side, I want to see what actually happens at this council now. Luke, of course, doesn't tell us everything that was said. Verse 7 says there was much debate. But Luke does want to highlight for us two main speeches that define the outcome, what gets decided. Uh, Peter's speech focuses on what God has done so far in the life of the first-generation church. James's speech takes a different angle and focuses on how the Old Testament anticipates and therefore validates precisely what Paul and Barnabas have been seeing on the mission field. In Peter's case, he looks back to his own uh, foundational experience back with Cornelius. Uh, Remember what it was at the time that clearly convinced the Jerusalem church, Jewish majority church, that, that yes, the conversion of Cornelius and those with him was truly something God had done. An act of the Lord, not something Peter had come up with, but it was God who was doing this. Well, the reason they determined that was because those Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit just as much as the Jewish Christians had. Same Holy Spirit falling on them both in the same way. And you remember Peter telling them in chapter 11, if, if then God gave, them, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now what Peter's doing in... This meeting is he's extending that logic to the new question that's been raised by the Judaizers. And so you think, did God wait for Cornelius and his family members and friends to fulfill certain uh, ceremonial conditions? Did he wait for them to get circumcised or fulfill some other regulations as a condition for whether or not he was going to pour out the Holy Spirit on them? No, he didn't. Questions, why would we as the church do something that God didn't see it necessary to do? As he was acting directly, immediately, in the conversion of those first Gentiles. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the church, poured out the Holy Spirit from heaven on them, even though they had done none of those things. How can it be true that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved if Cornelius and his family and friends were saved that day. Verse 9 says, He made no distinction. No distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So if God didn't make that distinction, why should we? Um, And instead, Peter argues, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And I want to look at verse 9 and verse 11 side by side again. Um, You notice the pairing in verses 9 and 11 of faith, verse 9, and grace, verse 11. We often talk about um, those phrases, sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola fide, through faith alone. In verse 11, Paul is emphasizing that it's not observance of the law of Moses that's going to lead to salvation for anybody, Jew or Gentile. Whoever you are, salvation is a matter of a free gift of God. You can't add anything to it. Having your sins forgiven, getting the promise of a forever life with God, is is not something that you can earn by doing certain outward acts. 
or that you can qualify yourself for by doing certain outward acts or by cooperating, as others have sometimes put it, with a system that God has set up. It's not something that you can merit. It's not something you can make yourself worthy of by keeping to a certain code. That salvation, that forgiveness, that gift of eternal life is exactly that. It is a free gift of God. That's what grace is, a free gift. We do great injustice to the generosity of the Lord. We try to add something to what he is saying he is simply going to give us. Verse 9, so that's the grace alone principle. Verse 9 gives the faith alone principle. Um, so God didn't wait for Cornelius to, to do something, to perform a task or keep a rule before he got the Holy Spirit. But there was a change in Cornelius, right? There was something that happened that made the difference, that led to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What was it? It was when Cornelius heard the word of God. When he heard the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection, and he responded by believing it and by trusting that Christ, who had done those things for him, that he could never do for himself. That was faith. It was through faith. That was the instrument by which God cleansed Cornelius' heart and united him permanently to the Lord Jesus. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ. Period. Plus nothing else. Oh, I skipped over verse 10, if I noticed. Uh, coming in between the faith verse and the grace verse. Verse 10 reminds us um, that this faith alone, grace alone principle is not something new with the New Testament. It actually extends back into the Old Testament. Even It reminds us that even in the Old Testament, it wasn't law-keeping that saved people. It's not as though people were saved by getting circumcised and keeping the law back then, but they're saved by grace through faith now. The Judaizers are not only getting the New Covenant wrong, they're getting the Old Covenant wrong. Being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses was never the way anyone was saved. Peter points out here, Israel couldn't bear the weight of the ceremonial law ever in its history. Keeping it was never the way Israel hoped to be saved. Instead, what those laws were there for were, were, were to point Israel to their coming Savior. They were there to remind them to look forward and to wait for those symbols to become realities in Christ. James, um, in what follows, comes at the same question, giving the same answer, but from a different angle. James uh, refers back to the Old Testament prophets. Amos chapter 9, which we read earlier. Amos 9 looks forward to the final future, to the, uh, the last days when God's going to expand the kingdom of God beyond the narrow confines of Israel as Israel had ever known it before. God speaks there of the Gentile nations that are called by my name. In other words, the church shouldn't be treating the conversion of the Gentiles as an unexpected twist out of the blue, some kind of exception to the way that God 
said he would do things, but I guess we'll allow it if these, peop- if these new people are willing to fit into God's old way of doing things. No, James is saying, if you want to follow the Old Testament, if you want to truly be loyal to the Old Testament, you need to follow what the prophets said, what they anticipated. They clearly anticipated God doing something new, something expansive. The inclusion of the Gentiles is not this anomaly that needs to be uh, reacted to or corrected for by making sure they get in line with the way things were before Jesus came. No, the inclusion of the Gentiles is, in part, why Jesus came. It is right on plan for the Lord, just as he always revealed it, and the church shouldn't be treating it as a kind of awkward difficulty or mention the works to be worked around. So James recommends the contents of a proposed letter uh, and this whole assembly then, not only the apostles, by the way, um, this is not just a top-down decree, although obviously the apostles' authority has a lot of weight here, but verse 22 is clear that it's the apostles and the elders with the whole church. This is an action of the whole church uh, coming to this consensus of what the scriptures say, what the scriptures mean, and what the church now ought to do and teach. They send this letter by messengers, respected um, leaders in the church, to the church at Antioch. And the force of the letter um, is, in general, to to relieve the Gentiles of any need to observe the ceremonial laws, cleanliness, regulation of the Old Testament, including circumcision, as some kind of condition of being included in the church. Now, there are four things that they do tell them that they ought to avoid, um, all of them having to do with particularly uh, public ways that, that they should avoid needlessly offending fellow Christians from Jewish backgrounds, um, as well as possibly unconverted Jews in the synagogues who may yet have an opportunity to believe the gospel. Um, here's what the letter does not mean. It, these four things don't mean that, okay, well, there are, most of the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and passed away, but there are these four ceremonial laws that, that actually still do apply today and that Christians will have to still keep keeping, uh, even if you're a Gentile. If, if that was what they wanted to do, this would be kind of an odd list to pick. It would seem kind of arbitrary. Why these four? Um, later, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians, actually, uh, listen, about the food sacrifice to idols thing. It's, it's not that there's anything wrong with the food. Um, in fact, there are some circumstances where it's actually just fine for you to eat it because the idols are nothing. It's just meat. But the issue is don't publicly associate yourself with pagan idolatry and don't do things that the Jewish background people in your community are going to see as super offensive and a major obstacle to fellowship with you and a major obstacle to uh, believe in the gospel. So what, the, what this charge of these four things is basically saying is, here are some ways that you can promote peace and fellowship in these mixed church communities. Here are some ways you can be an effective witness to the Jews around you who are already going to be weirded out enough at the idea of joining a mixed community of Jews and Gentiles in the first place. Um, without the further obstacle of, of these food practices. Now, you might wonder about the sexual immorality point. That's clearly not a ceremonial issue at its heart. Um, although there, there are ceremonial regulations related to this. Um, but the, that point does have in common with the other three more food-related um, issues. Uh, one key factor, it relates to how these people are not to take part in and associate themselves with the general idol-worshiping pagan culture around them. They're to 
separate themselves from the pagan idolatrous idol worship of the the pagan idol worship of the uh, pagan temples. People of a Jewish background are going to be looking at them and assuming when they see, oh, you're a Gentile, you're not one of us, therefore you're in there with Greek and Roman paganism, uh, same as all the other Greeks and Romans are engaging in, and these Gentile Christians are being reminded, you're to be different, you're to be set apart, you are part of a unique community. Um, and aside from the moral issue, there's also the, the issue of, of being separate from that general idolatrous pagan culture. Now, we're going to close here. Um, there's so much more that could be said about this council and the issues at stake. But the last thing I want you to notice before we close is the joy and the encouragement that comes to the church in Antioch when they receive this letter. What I want to underline here is that this is what the gospel of free salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does. It brings joy to the people of God. That's what we see here. The false gospel of Jesus and anything else. There are many ways we could go into of how we add to the gospel things of our own imagination, our own priorities, our own um, pet peeves, our own agendas, that false gospel of Jesus and anything else will always bring discouragement, always bring burden, will always bring frustration. It sets up a standard that we have to achieve, that we have to be good enough in some way in order for Jesus to do the rest and save us. But nothing could be more contrary to the good news, the gospel proclamation of the apostles as the messengers of Christ in the book of Acts. Only Christ, only Christ can save us by what he has done in his death and his resurrection for us. That is the gospel. Nothing that we can do can add to that. Nothing we can do can make us worthy to receive us or qualify us for it. And that is what the church needs in every age. Today as much as ever. We need to be brought back to that gospel of God's free grace received as a gift through faith alone in Christ alone. As we today, every bit as much as this first century church, as we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they were. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this gospel of free grace. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us from adding to it our own two cents that can only, by adding, take away the heart of this gospel. And now, show it to us, we pray, in this sacrament with which you're about to feed us, as you give to us freely Christ himself. We ask this in his name. Amen.